trigger warning, trigger warning. This is a reminder, you have got a trigger. Do you know what your trigger is? It's that soft spot, that bruise that makes you see red when it gets pushed. And I don't know what your trigger is. Only you know that. This podcast strives to have thoughtful adult conversation about human issues. But I'm not a professional, and I would describe lots of the topics here as things that would trigger someone. So if you find yourself being triggered by any of the issues that we talk about here, I'm asking you now to please take that opportunity to simply find something else to listen to. Also, this is not professional advice, ever, (laughs) even when we talk to professionals. This is only casual conversation that is meant to promote for mindfulness and examine our own egos. Thanks. What I've noticed in adoptee communities, people are trying to make sense of their experiences. And within adoptee communities, there's this term called the fog, where an adoptee kind of accepts and internalizes a lot of these dominant narratives, which unfortunately are often really racist, really white supremacist um, or classist. The presentation is usually, you know, we came from an impoverished third world country and we get to be in this first world country, uh, which is usually leans towards white and white culture being dominant and the best. And so there's this journey sort of that particularly uh, transracial adoptees, which are black or brown adoptees who've been adopted into white family and white culture, have to go through, which is to sort of recognize who they are in a white culture. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc, and this feels like a real confession. I fall asleep every night for years now with one AirPod in my ear. Am I afraid of the voices inside of my own head or lazy to break a bad habit? I don't know, both? It feels weirdly addictive and shameful. This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. A big welcome to Grace today. Grace and I do not know each other. This is actually our very first time talking, but we have been brought together by our mutual acting teacher, Wendy Ward, who we lost this year to cancer. Wendy had been a close friend of mine, a mentor in my 20s. She was that standout teacher in my path who really made an impact on me. She taught me how to listen, and she taught me the power of specificity and fantasy. I hadn't talked to her in a number of years, and when I reached out to her to be a guest on this podcast during season one, I was surprised to find that she had just been diagnosed with stage four cancer and she passed just a few months later. I started thinking about the ways that Wendy had impacted my life, the ways that she had contributed to my delusion. And so I began reaching out to her network of students on the internet from all over the world to record the ways that Wendy had impacted their delusions. It's a project that I continue to work on, a way to mourn her, 
to continue to learn from her and feel connected to her through the people that knew her. One day I will release that episode or episodes. I'm not really sure yet. But in the process of making it, I am meeting all of these former students, like Grace, that I feel akin to because of Wendy. I first saw Grace in a YouTube video that some former students put together for Wendy before she passed, and I just knew that Grace was someone that I needed to talk to. Maybe it was the slow and measured way that they spoke, or the way that they described the transformation that Wendy had helped facilitate in them, but Grace was having a conversation that I wanted to be a part of. And so I reached out and asked them, what delusion has driven or disrupted the course of your life? Here's Grace. I grew up overseas on American military bases. And I think at 11, I had just moved to Germany. What was neat was Germany being a really central European country, we could travel everywhere. So we actually used to go to London almost every year. And I would see all kinds of productions and I would have playbills plastered all over my wall and big posters and things like that. And that's what I really wanted to do. Grace has always wanted to be an actor. I literally could not be pulled off a stage. My first role was Sandy the dog in Annie as a, you know, I was in kindergarten and I wouldn't leave the stage. They literally had to drag me off. Uh, by my tail. And immediately, I feel like Grace and I are kindred spirits. That's the way I was. Am. Was. I'm not sure anymore. Grace got on stage, and they liked it. What was that feeling that they just had when everybody was looking at them and they got rewarded with a spontaneous mass of approval for acting out? They wanted to feel that again. At least, that's kind of what it was like for me. I needed to be the center of attention. I was that obnoxious kid. I'm wondering if that was like a similar sort of motivation for you, or maybe you could unpack what that meant to be seen that way. I don't know that I would put it like that, but I'm starting to realize that that's maybe somewhere a part of my persona. I think that when I was younger and maybe even today, there's something about being entertaining entertaining, if the desire was to be entertaining, did you feel like that was bringing value and somehow made you important? Did you feel unheard or unseen? Or what do you think was behind it? (sighs) That's such a good question. I do have an answer, maybe somewhat loaded, but I think particularly as an adopted person. Grace was adopted when they were only seven months old. I feel like I grew up really rather codependently, where I was really concerned about everyone around me. And I think that's the experience and narrative that a lot of adoptees get is, I mean, from the blunt experience of being given up, that creates a really strong message. I think that a lot of us experience at very young ages and then are trying to make sense of as we grow into adults. That is a strong narrative to be wrestling with, that you've been given up. It feels like a core piece of the story that I would tell myself, or maybe the story that Grace grew up telling. I don't want to act like I know too much here because I'm not an adopted person, and I do not know what that story feels like. But Grace does, and they are very articulate. Broadly, I'll say adoption is painted as purely a good thing. The dominant narrative is it's this life-saving, family-creating thing. And for many people, that's true. So that can be an aspect of it. The other realities for me and lots of others, I think, is that adoption is trauma. 
no matter if someone is adopted into a good situation, the circumstances under which adoption is happening are always traumatic. A parent died, a parent is struggling with mental health or addiction, or is too young, or impoverished, or what have you. And so then, essentially, sort of no one thinks about the other side of adoption. So often, the story is told to feel grateful and lucky and hopeful. Live in the present. Look to the future. Don't look back. Never look back. Just feel grateful for where you are. And that sort of leaves adoptees in particular with these identity crises about who they are and where they belong. I don't know about you, but this is a new conversation for me, and it is truly enlightening to hear Grace go into so much detail here. I'm trying to find my way back to the original thought around how adoption is presented in the world. Oftentimes we grow up the only person of color in our family. I think what I was hesitant to say is, you know, the the real motivators what I've been politicized to know and understand are things like white supremacy and colonization that create these power dynamics in which predominantly white families are adopting black and brown babies around the world, essentially to save them. And the perspective is, if there's this really terrible situation, even someone impoverished, the adoption is presented as a solution to that versus maybe supporting the family that needs more resources. Certainly, I've heard the story before. Adoption saves lives, period. But this other narrative, that maybe the original family just needed more support. Yeah, lots of people have lots of different experiences with adoption, but I think It's important to know that it's such a a multifaceted, complex situation, and it's never just like purely a a life-saving thing. As much as we might like to act like it is. But hashing through the nuance of a situation like adoption, especially when you're talking to a little kid, I imagine takes intuition and patient conversation. And even then, I know you've got good intentions, Earth Monster, but what are we going to do with all of your good intentions? I think I grew up with a strong narrative of like I was a chosen baby. So lots of adoptees are kind of encouraged to just feel grateful. You know, for example, for me, the encouragement has to, has been to been like, aren't you grateful you were adopted and became American? And that could be an aspect of it. But I also coincidentally know my birth family. I know they struggled and potentially just needed some more support. And I had to live a life separated from my birth family and my birth culture. And it's taken decades to figure out like who I am and how I connect to this place that I was born, uh, which is the Philippines. I always knew I was adopted because I was adopted by a white woman. And we were in this sort of adoptive community because there was a huge group of single white women who were teachers on military bases who adopted babies from overseas. I call this brown babies adopted by white ladies in the 80s. Brown babies adopted by white ladies in the 80s. Don't steal that. That's Grace's story to tell. And there's a big group of us. It's kind of wild. And I don't know that stories like that are told. Grace's adopted mother also adopted another child. She's also adopted from the Philippines from a different family. And Grace's adopted mom tried to keep the conversation open with the kids from the very beginning. She started talking to us about our birth families pretty young. And that's not always the case. I think we were the only ones that I knew of who had a sort of open adoption 
or at least an option to be in touch with our birth families. But I grew to be very in touch with my birth family. We would would write letters and occasionally have phone calls. And from the time I was in second grade is when I learned that I had uh, some siblings, uh, which included a twin brother and then two younger siblings. And we were just in touch a lot of my life, but I never really thought about the layers of that, especially connected to my own identity. So I think things didn't really hit until a lot later. Grace was a happy kid, I think. I mean, they didn't say that outright, but that's sort of the sense that I got. That they were unconscious of a lot of their own feelings about their adoption. Unaware of a lot of the stories that were being told surrounding the adoption. Unaware of the greater world context that would affect their sense of self later on. One, because I was growing up overseas on military bases, so I grew up really internationally, and I didn't really kind of recognize race dynamics in the United States in particular. And so I never really thought to myself individually, like, what does it mean to be Asian? And I didn't have any personal grounding for that. So it really messed me up when I realized that there are people who are fully raised with their families and in their cultures, and I didn't have that, and I had to sort of figure that out for myself. But Grace was years and years away from that kind of realization. They were just a kid, living in the fog. Grace, I want to sort of hear the voices of your fog. Mm -hmm. You said that you grew up being told you were like one of the chosen babies. So I'm curious, does that story create a kind of like egotism in you as a kid or like uh, any sense of entitlement? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that because I think it created the opposite. Even if subconsciously, it was kind of like, I can't mess up ever because maybe I'm going to be given up again or people won't like me or I'll experience rejection in another way. So I think it actually facilitated a lot of codependency, a lot of thinking about other people first, making sure that everyone around me was happy so that I wouldn't rock the boat in any type of way. It also meant a type of perfectionism and a type of like, I have to be really good at everything that I do so that I'll impress people. So again, that I won't like experience this rejection or abandonment. Delusion! What types of things were you doing as a kid that you felt like you had to be great at? I think certainly academically for a while, it was really important that I got really good grades. I played soccer and I know for a while that was like my life. And I played on like three different teams and I did a lot of competitive soccer playing. And so that was certainly something that, I I mean, it was something that I really enjoyed. I love playing soccer, but I also felt like I had to do really well at And then theater was the other thing. Theater was the other thing. Grace is an actor, remember? It's almost like a people pleaser or something, like needing to make Mm -hmm. sure everyone's happy with you. Was that because you felt like, well, I'm the person who's here under extraneous circumstances. Everyone else was like meant to be here and I got lucky and I'm here. So I need to fight for my spot. Is that? Yeah, exactly. And then unfortunately, the the more racist or colonial messaging was like, aren't you glad you're not like living in poverty in the Philippines, which is terrible. That's a terrible message to give anyone, you know, I mean, think poverty is very real in the Philippines, but it's not like that's a necessary reality for everyone there. 
Grace, were the rest of your biological siblings living as a family unit in the Philippines? Yeah. And so you were the outlier there? Yeah. And you knew that from the time you were young? Yeah, and it's definitely still sort of a pain body as far as my birth siblings. Communication was always difficult, particularly when they were growing up. It was like predominantly letters and letters wouldn't make it all the time and and phone calls were hard because of the language barrier. Don't forget, even though they were allowed to talk to each other, they didn't speak the same language. But when social media happened, it was like we could just see each other in our daily lives. But I also, because of the language barrier, I don't really feel like I know them very deeply. So Grace's biological family lived in the Philippines. Their twin brother, their younger siblings, they struggled, or at least I think so. But it was also maybe kind of hard to tell what it was like over there. Hard to really connect with them about what life was like. Meanwhile, Grace grew up on military bases around Europe and ultimately ended up in the United States, where they went to college in Georgia. I think I didn't really confront a lot of my adoption stuff until I was 27. I'm sorry, one more time, 27? Yeah, I feel like I started to come out of the fog when I was 27. I think that's the first time I looked at the other side of my life experience, which is that I was given up. Just thinking about being given up adds a lot more layers. At 27 years old, Grace had never really thought about that before. The idea that they were perhaps not a chosen baby, but instead had been given up. That feels like a very different story. I think it was prompted by a public speaker of sorts who was asking us kind of where does trauma show up in our life? And I'd never even thought about that because I'd always had this narrative around being grateful and being lucky that I had this really full life, but there were lots of hard things that I'd been through. 27 years of real life lived, but still at that point, Grace had not confronted some of the central pieces of their own identity. I am remembering it now. I was probably mid to late 20s, and I had been serving as the LGBT coordinator for this small liberal arts college I graduated from in central Georgia. And I was actually serving more in like a staff role, taking students, college-age students, to this speaker. Grace helped corral the other students who were there to listen to a talk by an outside speaker. They helped file the group into an auditorium on campus. I think it was the stereotypical sort of college auditorium. And I think we were all, you know, groups of maybe seven or eight at round tables spread out around a room. And whether we were prompted or not, I usually always had a journal. Me too, to keep track of my story. And was sort of taking notes of the talk. And the speaker is Yolo Achille. And he's now the executive director of BEAM. And I think that's an org that supports mental health services for Black community. But he was really being really honest that he had come there to give a talk to sort of be inspiring to young people. But he just was so honest that he was having a hard time, that he was feeling like really burnt out. And he was sad about the state of the world, particularly for Black people. And then also in higher education, where people are just encouraged to just burn themselves to the ground and not take care of themselves. It sounds like he was not having a great day. 
Maybe he was booked to give this motivational talk, but had woken up lacking motivation himself. I imagine it was the kind of day when you're feeling the weight of the world and you just don't want to do your job. Maybe he had wanted to cancel. In my experience, those are always the most important days to show up. And he did. He showed up authentically for them, and he used his bad day to motivate them. He was honest. He told them he was having a hard time, feeling sad, burnt out, disappointed, angry. He just told them where he was at. And so he was reflecting that he really just had to figure out where trauma had shown up in his life and where had he ignored it so that he could keep going. It was a good question. Instinctually, Grace wrote it down in their notebook to consider more deeply later on. Where had trauma shown up in Grace's life? And where had they ignored it? And I think I wrote it down, but I don't think it really hit me until later. I was just like talking with someone else about these things, maybe even on a drive home or something. And from there, after giving the question some space and time, I think it just like everything came up and it kind of hit me kind of hard. I'd never thought about trauma in general, and I never thought about what are the hard experiences that I've had that I've ignored or that I hadn't even been given the opportunity to look at. And then the next step would be, how are those experiences impacting my life? And it was, it was rough. I, um, bluntly, I had a sort of mental health crisis and I had to stop work for a little bit because it was like so much. It was like so much I had never even thought of. And I spent a couple of days in a crisis center. It was, it was kind of a rough time. Um, but from there, I got a little bit more intentional mental health support around codependency and identity. And yeah, I just kept trying to work through things from there. And, and I, I think I became, you know, a lot more curious in that sense and a lot more open to the, to the difficult things. As far as like, if I can kind of figure out what is the underlying difficult thing, you know, then hopefully that will maybe free some things up. There's a lesson that every single one of us can probably use. If we can humble ourselves and be more open to looking at the underlying difficult things, then maybe we can free some other parts of ourselves up. And so what does that look like when the fog starts to, starts to burn off for the first time? What's that transition sound like? Yeah, I think that's why I said I sort of support anger and all of the feelings that adoptees might have. And that involves a lot of sadness, involves a lot of grief. It involves a lot of questioning everything you've ever known. You know, it's like, wait, how was I adopted? Why was I adopted? What were the circumstances under which I was adopted? Yeah, a lot of deep identity crisis around like, what were the circumstances under which I was born and then this adoption happened? A lot of big questions that had taken Grace 27 years to ask, and a lot of big answers that seemed to alter the way that they saw their entire life. There's the aspect of sort of given up by a birth family or a birth culture, but there's also this aspect of being taken. And I think it's really okay to feel really mad that this thing happened 
to us as a baby that we had no say in and that we were really separated from a, a place of origin, that there was nothing wrong with that place. That in my specific example, the, the Philippines is a very rich culture, culturally and otherwise. It's labeled as third world and developing by other cultures. But if we dig a little bit more deeply, it's in its economic situation because predominantly the United States. Which is where grace was ultimately taken. I definitely went through a really strong period of anger in my life where I actually, I didn't really talk to my birth family and I didn't talk to my adoptive family either. And what I observe in adoptee communities is a lot of people get sort of lost in that and stuck in that anger. Universal human pattern. What anger have you gotten stuck in? And so the other side is while I support being really angry and having lots of feelings and being unapologetic about your feelings, I do think a full-time job of anger is not going to serve anybody. So you know, then how can we sort of reconnect and reclaim our lives in a way that's meaningful without having to suppress uh, what's been hard about our lives? So this is, I think, what I'm really curious about is you seem super in tune with yourself. I don't know that I can name this quality, but there's something very like um, you draw me in. Like, I just feel like you're having a conversation that I want to be having. It's maybe it's your perspective or the way that you see the world. But I guess what I'm I'm wondering is for someone who has transitioned several ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, you referenced transitioning with gender, but then also it feels like a transition with lifting from the fog, right? I would assume that those experiences really allow you to get to know yourself. Mm -hmm. probably more so than your average person who isn't maybe examining themselves so closely because they, they don't have those circumstances or whatever. But I guess what I'm wondering is the sense of self that you have now, does it, is it, is it completely born of those experiences or, or do you feel like you, this is also a bit of your nature? I think that I have always been called a sort of old soul. And as a kid, I think people thought I was pretty unique in my presentation um, in all different kinds of ways. It could be the entertainment aspect or the gender aspect. I think I grew up, you know, I'd be labeled like a tomboy. And yeah, any type of traditional gender role just didn't really sit right with me. And I overall felt really fine with that. I think this is the opportunity that both trans people and adopted people have, you know, again, without leaving out the very difficult aspects of our lives, because our life experiences are really out of the box. I don't know another way to put it, but really are sort of naturally non-conforming. They don't fit any kind of traditional or dominant narrative. I do have a, another queer and trans friend who talks about queer and trans people being the vanguard of the revolution because of the ways that we get to define ourselves. Vanguard, a group of people leading the way in new developments or ideas. And I think that queer and trans people across culture, across time and history have always done that. And there was a time in many cultures where queer and trans people are actually lifted up as sacred beings 
as people who like can hold those transitions and guide people through those transitions in really important ways. And then, you know, comes colonization, comes white supremacy, and it's sort of, um, those things are sort of stamped out for the purpose of control. And so, you know, that's sort of the legacy that we get to bring into this time is try to, to be those things and, you know, hopefully inspire that in others too. And how much of that is consciously a part of your story now, being being a, a modern day vanguard of the revolution? Because I could believe it from listening to you. I, I imagine many other folks talk about this, but you know, when we can see our stories reflected, uh, we feel less alone and we thwart isolation. And if someone happens to have a unique experience like mine of being adopted, of being queer or trans, of growing up overseas on military bases, it can be jarring when we don't see that anywhere in the world. And then on the flip side, it can be very healing knowing that many other people also have had that experience. And I also genuinely believe that creatives will save us. Anything that we might be locked into right now, any sort of perspective or mentality that we feel is hopeless, that we feel that nothing can be done about it, there can always be something done about it. We just have to like be creative about it. We have to think about it in a different way, or we have to like turn it into a puppet show or a drawing or like, you know, express it in some different way. And I'm sure we could find a solution to it. So I'm really excited about sort of making offerings like that in the world. Grace is actually in the middle of another transition right now. At this moment, as I transition out of nonprofit work into pursuing a more full-time career in acting and creating of all kinds. It's kind of, it feels like I have to give myself a pep talk almost every day of like, (laughs) you can do this, like you're good enough, you're talented enough, and what is meant for you is coming to you and just keep going. It's a familiar delusion, one that Grace has used before, but maybe it's only really become effective since they've taken some time to listen and learn more about themselves. It's interesting because it's like, it takes a real confrontation of the hard stuff to get through it. And people live full lives never confronting those things. And that ends up working out for some people. And there is so much more possibility, I think, when we can work through some of those harder things as well. I'll say I support adoptees being really angry at what happened to them. And then I also encourage adoptees at some point, just like everyone, we sort of have to take responsibility for our lives and figure out what type of life we want to live, even though we might have had a really difficult experience or upbringing. And so for me, I can think a little bit deeply and even in a spiritual sense i can find a lot of purpose in my adoption and i will also never be grateful that i was adopted it's flat when people say that you know that you had to be adopted in order for this that and the other to occur there are many other ways for us to live our lives and for meaningful experiences to happen and i don't think adoption should have to happen for someone to to have those things so yes for me it's it's just finding a sort of expansiveness to my existence 
it's not so binary. It's not so adopted or not, or this life or that life, you know? Binary, relating to, composed of, or involving two things. It is the squishy nature of this real life that we live. In this world that strives to create hard lines and discover all the facts until we know everything. It's a delusion. We don't like to address this fog that surrounds us. It grows inside of us. It sustains us. It moves us over the difficulty that lies beneath. I don't know about the world that you live in, but mine has never felt so squishy. Hard truths that I grew up knowing have fallen away, and I find myself looking for vanguards to help lead me through the fog. I do feel really lucky about the family I was adopted into. They've been incredibly supportive. Another reality is that lots of people don't have that experience. I have been really lucky that my birth family's been really accepting of me as a queer and trans person. And that's sometimes another narrative that gets pushed forward is like these other third world countries won't be so supportive of LGBT people, but that's also not true broadly. And we, I think we have a good connection, but I also, because of the language barrier, I don't really feel like I know them very deeply. I want to thank Grace for their story today and invite them back anytime a delusion strikes them as necessary. See what I did there? Grace is a creator in their own right. You can follow them on the internet. My Instagram is at Tori2Grace. That's T-O-R-I and then the number two Grace. And that's where I'll probably post about some different shows that I got coming up and other projects that I'm working on. I have also been working on audio dramas, which I love this audio form. And coming up hopefully sometime soon will be a pilot episode of an audio drama called Crocodile Twins which is pretty autobiographical of my of my life experience. So I'll probably post about that on my Instagram and the podcast platform called Artist Soapbox. That's where um, some other things I've been a part of are located. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. If you have love for the show, you can hit us up on Venmo at Your Necessary Delusion. Don't forget to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. And what am I going to say? The voicemail is waiting for you. 323-540-4540. You can leave us feedback on an episode or tell us a story of your own. You don't even have to leave your name if you don't want like this guy that called from Craigslist. I'm actually a good storyteller. I would love to be on a podcast to sit back and talk about a lot of things. Or remember my friend Peter from Free the Riddler? That's episode one of season two. But he's been taking some time away from L.A. recently, and he's been using the voicemail to document some of his delusions along the way. Here he is coming to us from his dad's writing shed in suburban Minneapolis. Hey, Matt LeBlanc, it's Peter Brown. I'm coming to you live from my dad's writing shed in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It is March 9th. It's pretty cold. I've been home less than 48 hours, and it's really surreal to be back in the place where 
it all began. I think, too, just getting outside of L.A., it's, like, really refreshing to just, like, have normal conversations with people about stuff that doesn't revolve around the industry. And I think there's a real power in returning to your roots. Here I am in this shed with this gorgeous photograph of my parents from, like, 40-plus years ago, and there's a little photo in the window that I see every morning, because this is where I come and I do my morning pages now, of both my dad's parents, his father who died when he was 19, um, and then my grandmother, who I barely knew before she passed. But um, my dad's written a lot of good stuff in here, so I just think this physical space is pretty magical, and I'm always trying to recreate it when I'm in L.A., when I'm on the road. My own kind of personal shed, which is almost like a womb for my creativity. And uh, I'm just about to start off the artist way, which I've done before. It's a 12-week course in, like, artistic recovery. But I'm about to start day one, and uh, I'll keep you posted. So stay tuned, and big hugs to you and pal. We will be back next week with more epic, everyday stories of success and redemption. Until next time. Uh, Grace, I'm going to try my best to not be obnoxious about this, but uh, I'm also going to do my best to try to make a friend out of you. Um, I'm here for it. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. I'll take any personal recommendation that Wendy would, would give me. You know, I feel like I, I got to, to meet some cool people through reaching out like that. Oh, thank you. I feel like Wendy would be excited too. I think, I don't know. But, you know, she always talked about authenticity and just like bringing your real full and whole self uh, to a moment. So I know that that's what always struck me about her classes from like the first moment I met her and the first class I attended, the emphasis was on listening and being like present to the world and to yourself. So potentially a lot of this composure <laughs> and, uh, is coming uh, with Wendy's influence. Ta-ta delusion.